Last week I got a chance to go to one of my favorite Michigan places. Um, up on M22, there's a little village called Empire. And south of Empire, there's a little park. And if you park there and you hike about a mile uh, through the woods there in a little undulating path, you come out on a bluff, and it's called Empire Bluff. And it overlooks the Manitou Passage between the, between the two north and south Manitou and the narrow band of uh, dangerous water that runs uh, between uh, there and, and uh, the Leelanau Peninsula. And it's 150 feet above sea level. Now, Ken Ryle and I were talking when I was up there speaking last week, and he said that's 150 feet above sea level. And I thought, well, that's remarkable because it's an amazing view just 150 feet above sea level. We, we went out, um, I think it was, uh, I forget when it was, we visited Oregon and where Holly lives, and they took us to their town. There's a tower that's above town that's called the Astoria Column, and everybody who visits goes up to the Astoria Column, and the, this, the perspective from up there, it's 650 feet above sea level. It is amazing. You can see over into the state of Washington. You can see out into the Pacific. You can see back along the coast of Oregon. You can see the whole town and, and the, the bridge that goes over into Washington. It's 650 feet above sea level. Empire Bluff is 150 feet above sea level. And the Astoria Column is 650 feet above sea level. In Pergamus, there was the, church, the, the letter to the church of Pergamus, it's the letter that we're studying today in Revelation chapter 2. In Pergamus, there was an Acropolis or a cluster of temples built on a precipice a thousand feet above the city. A thousand feet. So to be there would be stunning. Uh, Pastor and Mrs. Birch are not with us today. They will return. And he's, he, they're quiet about this, but they both have traveled to Turkey and they have traveled and they have. Uh, visited these sites. So we're looking forward to having him share some insights about this. He's very humble about that, and it just occurred to me, we need to have him talking. He's actually been there. So this place is a thousand feet above sea level, an amazing, amazing place. And it had, it was, and, and you understand, the, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans were polytheists, which sounds really weird to us because we're used to people who believe in only one God, one very supreme being. But in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, they were polytheists. And so they didn't just have a temple to a God. They had a temple to whatever God you needed for whatever problem that you had or whatever desire you had. And Pergamos was so full of that that it was actually called the seat of Satan. Jesus, when he talks to the Christians in Pergamos, he calls the Pergamos Satan's seat because there's so many false gods there. And now, you know, think about this. Why is that? Well, you know, it's, it's obvious in one sense that people are innately and intuitively religious. In other words, if you go around the world and you study the cultures of the world in any given place or time, you find that they worship something. They're intuitively religious. And, and, and every once in a while, someone will find a culture and say, look at this culture at this particular point in time. It looked like they were total secular humanists. But what was happening is they were just changing their deities right then. And so we had a short period. Didn't we have a short period of time in America when all the big talk was about secular humanism? But now there are all kinds of false religions and all kinds of false cults and all kinds of isms and all kinds of Eastern mysticism and all kinds of crazy syncretic doctrines. People aren't not worshiping. We all 
intuitively worship. And there, in, in Pergamos, there were uh, temples to um, the, the different gods. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And Pergamos had the second largest library in the ancient world, over 200,000 volumes. And you don't want to think folio library, you want to think scroll library. And as an interesting anecdote, in, in, in Pergamos was competing with Alexandria in Egypt for the world's greatest library, and obviously for bragging rights about the, the academic center of the world. And so someone in Pergamos was trying to recruit away the librarian from Alexandria. The people in Alexandria got that stopped, and then they refused to export uh, the papyrus needed for scrolls to Pergamos. And so Pergamos began to use parchment, and the word parchment comes from the word Pergamos. And so, in, in other words, these people were proud of their knowledge. They were proud of their wisdom, and there was this a, a temple to the goddess Athena or, or wisdom. So if you wanted wisdom or academic superiority, and people are still this way, right? This is the temple you would go to to pray up on the mountain in Pergamos. Then there was the Asclopius, the god of healing. And you, you often see, even today in medicine, the snake around the pole. And they actually would use snakes in this kind of uh, in, this, um, in these rituals of healing. If you wanted healing, this is the temple you would go to. And of course, then, you know, it's familiar in the, God, the, the Greek and the Hebrew, or the, I'm sorry, the Greek and the uh, Roman gods, they kind of adopted one, another, one another's gods. They kind of gave, you know, common names. And so Dionysus, the Greek, and the, and the Bacchus, the Roman god, are the gods of pleasure or wine. So this would be basically what most downriver people do on Friday night. They get drunk and they do bad stuff. And that's just kind of the gods of the age. They, we have, they're not really, they don't have a lot of variety. They still do some of the exact same things. Only they had an ornate temple to Dionysus. And they had this, and that's why, by the way, when you read, don't be drunk with wine, that leads to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. This was the problem in Ephesus. They, were, um, they, they got their ecstatic experiences by drunkenness and things that went with them. And he's saying, that's not how you get real spirituality, by going and getting drunk and all the stuff that goes with that. And this was the, goddess, the, the, god, the temple to Dionysus, the god of pleasure or of uh, revelry, of a god of wine, leading to revel, revelry, leading obviously... Uh, to sexual immorality, and even sometimes to human sacrifice. Of course, we know that drinking doesn't lead to people dying now. And then there's Demeter. That was a little subtlety there. Then there was Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. This is basically the goddess that you prayed to when you wanted prosperity, and there were temples to all these gods. And then, of course, the king of the gods, the god of the gods, or the king of the kings, was Zeus. And Zeus would also sometimes, in, in Greek mythology, kill other gods or get arbitrary and, and, and compete with other gods, the god of power or dominance, the god of the sky, or of, uh, from Mount Olympus, the god of lightning, who consulted both with mortals and with goddesses. And if that weren't enough gods in ancient Pergamos, then there was this, uh, this emperor worship that we talked about in the other places, but they were trying to lead the emperor worship. When we talk about emperor worship, now we're talking about here like a Caesar from Rome, and they want to curry their favor, they want their and so they say, well, we're going to have a, an emperor. We're going to build a temple to his worship. And that way, he'll obviously favor us, and that will be good for business. And so uh, Pergamos was really good at this. After one died, they built another. So they eventually built three temples to three different Caesars, or, or three different. And so there was this. And this was the most dangerous of all the false religions. For the people in Pergamos, this was the most dangerous as a matter of fact, when we get to reading the text here, just in a minute, we're going to see that a guy is actually a witness martyr, and he dies, Artemis. And it's not probably Zeus. It's probably not the followers of Zeus that kill him. It's almost certainly uh, the emperor worship that had the, they, they wielded the sword of Rome 
And they're almost certainly the ones who killed him. There was, so there's this temple to Trajan, the god of political expedience. So in Pergamus, they would build the, the first temple for emperor worship, and eventually they would build two more. And, and all of their gods together never really satisfied them. Now, now in my house, um, I get up in the morning, and the house is dark. I rise really early. I'm a morning lark, and I married a night owl. And, um, and, and so I get up really, really early in the morning, and I don't want to wake up the other slothful people in the house. They're sleeping in. And so I don't turn on a lot of lights because I'm just a, a good guy like that. Now, now, certain people in my house, which I won't name because I don't like to embarrass my wife publicly or talk about her in the pulpit, um, will sometimes just put obstacles in the path in the dark. Like right now, in the middle of the hallway, our perfectly fine, clear hallway is the most unusual apparatus you've ever seen. It's a basket. It's a basket holder because you need one in your house. You've got to have baskets, that decorative baskets and holders for them with tines that stick out and could actually put your eye out in the dark. You need one. And if you have one, you're going to put it in the hall because that's what you do, you know. I suppose there's probably some little depravity there. She's just sleeping beauty, snuggling in her bed thinking, I wonder if Ken will get out of the house without a major injury today. You know, I'm not sure about that. But lately, this, this basket rack has been, in the, you didn't know this, did you, Lois? I moved it the other day, and I was, I was told to put it back. And me and she's like, that is not where that goes. I'm like, I know the rules around here. It's like, she puts stuff where it goes, and it stays there unless it's a book, then, it, then it's under my jurisdiction. It's dangerous, but it's kind of funny. It's not too serious. You could put your eye out, but it's unlikely. It's just a little inconvenience. Now, there's another thing that's really dangerous in our house, and it really has to do with the dog I didn't ask for. And, 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 you ha- and he has a little, ch- little chain. You put him out, and, and you put him out, you know, in the morning or something, and he goes out to bark at the neighbors and so forth and wake him up and ruin your testimony. And, and then he, he comes back in, you take him off his little thing. If it doesn't work out right, did I tell you I rise early before light? Sometimes I often leave the house before light. That's how hard I work for you people, yeah. Sometimes I leave the house before light, and, uh, and I go out, and what can often happen is that little tripwire goes across, you know, the dog can come in, and it can get hung up, and it's literally like a, a, a dangerous tripwire in the dark. And it hasn't happened. It's come, I've come really close to falling and caving in my skull in the past. So someday I'm going to come, and I'm going to have two black eyes, and my glasses will be broken. And I won't even have to tell you what happened. You'll go, the tripwire. I'm like, yeah. And I know people that went to Vietnam, and they said, this really wasn't funny, that the Viet Cong would put a tripwire that was lethal across the path, and if a soldier, GI, would come across that, it would, it would maim him or it would take his life. What really these false religions are in Pergamos is just everywhere you look, a tripwire of false belief that could destroy your life, absolutely maim you, absolutely destroy your life. This is what we're reading about now. When we look at the word from the King of Kings, Jesus, who is the, 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 the Son of Man, uh, to the church. And by the way, every time one of these letters ends, there's a phrase that says, let he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Plural. Churches. Isn't that interesting? Notice that this week. So it's almost like, Obviously, God's, Jesus says, this is to, you, to Pergamos, and obviously he knew and intended for them to apply to all of the churches. Jesus, who's the Lord of the church, who's the king of the universe, who's the very God of very God, is listening, he's watching how we respond to his instructions today. So let's just reverently read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 
to 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas my, was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have, you have there those who, who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What an interesting text. There's obviously some mystery in there and some knots to untangle. and some, there's, So the, all the, the letters follow this simple outline of the five different things which are in common to every letter to every church. And they would be, there's a name of Jesus or a description of Jesus given that's really pulled out of that original description in chapter 1. There is what they did right. Some would say the commendation. There's what they did wrong. Some would say the condemnation. There's what action should they take. That Some would say that's the correction. And then finally, there is a reward for Omer overcomers. And every one of the letters has these five things in it, except for the handful that don't have anything bad said against them or some things that are implied. So let's look first at the, this, this first. The Son of Man has a message for this church and a message for our church. First of all, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, or the description of Jesus. In this case, what is it? It's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in the picture, the sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. And so it's repeated here. It's repeated in when Jesus returns in power and great glory in Revelation chapter 19. This is how he's described. There's a symbolic significance to this that we don't want to lose. What does it mean? We'll talk about that. Christ is described as with a sword. The sword is obviously, and it would be to the people in Pergamos, and a symbol of judgment. Remember in, in Romans where it says about the magistrate or the police officer, he bears not the sword in vain. In other words, he can execute you or he can, he can fight against you with a sword illegitimately. In, in so, and so Christ is described with a sword, a symbol of judgment. This pictures Jesus' role as both judge and executioner of those who defy him. Notice then in verse 12, you have what did they, or sorry, in verse 13, what they did right. What they did right. I know your works. And remember, every one of these letters, he says, I know. That's something that we want to keep in mind. He's totally aware of all the good and the bad in the church. He says, I know. That's something he knows about them. He says, I know your works. And this is good. He says, I know where you live. I know, I know what you do. I know where you live. And I know that Satan's throne is there. And I know that you hold fast to my name. This is a theme that you could study in Revelation that we won't take time to study today. That's really interesting about the name of, of Christ. And did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr. Notice his, the possession there. Hold fast to my name. Deny my faith. Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, and again he repeats, where Satan dwells. What did they do right? Well, they were, they were, they were steadfast. They hadn't denied him, even though others had been 
killed in Pergamos. It was the, a place where the Roman governor had regional head offices. And he had what was known as the right to the sword. And in other words, and it was very common, everyone knew this, he had the right to the sword. In other words, the Romans would render judgment. The Romans could execute judgment, including death. And Antipas probably died by the sword of the Roman governor, or actually by the execution of the Roman governor in church history, in extra-biblical church history or tradition, they say that Antipas was boiled to death within the bowels of an animal, a, a brass animal. But when he was executed, most certainly, there was a procession through the streets. And the procession was led by an official Roman who held a huge sword. So the symbolism wouldn't be lost on the people in Pergamos. Jesus says, I'm the one that you need to be considering who has the sword of swords. You get it? And he does this in all of the in all of the letters, he does this rich, these, he makes these rich symbols that are very real to the people there. And so Antipas has probably died by the sword of the Roman governor, preceded in execution by a person bearing a huge sword or a symbol of judgment. And Jesus is saying, he is ultimately the one with the right to the sword. He's the one that we face someday who will judge and if necessary will execute that judgment. What did they do wrong? Verses 14 and 15. I have a few things against you. You just don't want to hear the Lord say this to you, right? I have a few things against you. So if Jesus came here, what would he say to evangel? We'll talk about that in a bit. And he says, I have a few things against you. And essentially they fall in two categories. Balaam and, Nico- and, 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 the, and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now Balaam, and we could go into long teaching on this. You should study this on your own. But essentially Balaam was asked to curse God's people and he He couldn't do it, and so instead of successfully cursing them, he corrupted them by introducing them into pagan wives, and then they eventually pulled them off. They went from immorality into idolatry, and immorality and idolatry go together. False belief usually leads to false behavior, and if you look in the Old Testament, you study that. And he's saying, and that's the same thing that's happening with this new sect of the Nicolaitans. You're familiar with Balaam and what happened with that, and God brought judgment on Israel because it got them involved in immorality. It's like, can I say it this way? They started compromising, and they started getting worldly. They started getting like all the, they fell on the tripwires all around them. They started getting like all the pressure around them. They started being like the world around them and their idolatry and immorality. And look what happened. They got judgment. That's what he's saying. And then the Nicolaitans, this is a new upstart thing. Maybe even one of the early deacons, Nicholas, was was strayed here. He took some people with him. And then what was the end result of that? The same way a false religion is today. At first it just sounds all fine, but what does it end up in? Same old, same old. Immorality and idolatry. So he's saying two problems. You've got in the church people that are involved in idolatry. They're actually going to pagan temples and are participating in, and there'd be a lot of pressure to do this. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to get up today, I'm going to worship a false god. It'd be tied to your job. It'd be tied to your family. It was, it was all through the culture. So the culture pressure was amazing. It's like you have a, a, a grandson that invites you to his wedding to another man, and you're like, do I go? See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? And so it is in that situation, you've got all this stuff going on, and people are starting to compromise with the world, and they're starting to get involved in idolatry, and they're starting to get involved in immorality, and they're in the church, and most of the church is tolerating that. They're like, well, we're not, we're not denying the faith, we're standing for the faith, but we're also not going to, we're going to tolerate this idolatry and immorality. This is a, so I have this against you, and what does Jesus say he's going to do? I'm going to come, I'm going to fight against you suddenly, with a sword of my mouth. It sounds ominous, right? It sounds pretty serious. 
It was wrong. It wasn't, they, were, they were talking about eating meat offered to idols. It wasn't wrong to eat meat offered to idols, according to the New Testament, until it became wrong because the Jerusalem council, council counseled people not to do it. It's like this church, there was, some, there was some church authority where they said, we don't want you to do this, and then they went against it. But some would suggest that's not really so much what was happening, is that they were actually, that there wouldn't have been wrong to go to the market and buy meat that was offered to idols and eat it necessarily, depending on the culture. But it was certainly wrong to participate in that pagan feast, and that's what they were doing. And, and so um, this is what he has against them. Um, it, um, in James chapter 4, um, the scripture says, you're familiar with this, the scripture says, uh, ye, you adulteresses. In the original, in the, like the English Bible, it says, you adulterers and adulteresses. But in the original language, it just says, ye adulteresses. Because obviously we're the bride of Christ, so if we are unfaithful to God, we're all adulteresses. Get it? He says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, it's hatred for God. You can't have fellowship with the world system and have fellowship with God at the same time. And then the next verse is often not read, and here's a paraphrase of it. Don't you realize you have the Holy Spirit in you and he's yearning jealously against this? The Holy Spirit yearns jealously in the heart of every one of us when we want to get in bed with the world, when we lean toward the world of worldly things. Now, um, and so this is what he's saying. First Peter chapter 2 is interesting. I think verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Well, how are we sojourners and pilgrims? Well, you, you ever hear the old uh, hillbilly song? Oh, I love it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond them. But well, the world is our home eventually, but not until it gets renewed by fire and God has his way, and then it's a, a new world. But for now, we're pilgrims and strangers. So I have a friend in Atlanta, an acquaintance. His name is James Bronner. He and his brother are pastors in Atlanta. Neat guys. Listen to his testimony this week, and he said, I wonder where they, how these, there are six brothers, they love the Lord, and a bunch of them are pastors. They're African-American brothers and just love the Lord. And they have a precious attitude about the things of the Lord. And I was listening to his testimony. And he said, here's how that happened. My mother got me up every morning and she walked me to the bus stop when I went to the public school. And we memorized scripture all the way to the bus stop. Every time. That's a great program. That's not that beautiful. And here in this fine Christian guy that's a solid guy. We went down there to their church and we preached. Lois and I went down in 2004. We preached at their church. And James Bronner is the youngest of the brothers. And they had one or two children at the time. They heard our testimony about eight kids. And they felt, they felt the Lord directed them to have eight kids. They got seven so far. Isn't that cool? I'm a man of great influence. <laughs> Isn't that great? There's little people in the world because of that. That's kind of cool. But anyway, how did he... How did he come to know the Lord? How did he come to walk with the Lord? How did he come to love the Lord? Well, his mother walked through the bus up every morning. She said, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. You're going into that school, and there's going to be Christians there, and there's going to be not Christians there. There's going to be people that don't love God, and there's going to be people who do love God. You're different than they are. You memorize these scriptures, and you go in there, and you're not a part of that. You're not better than they are, but you are different. My mother taught me that. My dad taught me that. You go. We went to the public school, and mom and dad said, most of the people, some of them know the Lord. Many did. Some of them don't. But you're not to have fellowship. You're not one in your deepest part with people who don't love the Lord. Because if you do that, what's going to happen is a tripwire is going to eventually take your faith away from you and destroy you. 
And that's what that's what's the deal here is this is what's wrong is they're compromising because they have all this pressure around them. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Because they have all these unbelievers all around us that are just kind of populating the whole cultural ethic is godless, just like our world that we live in. There are pagan temples all around us. They prevail over us in our culture. No one speaks officially reverently of God on the nightly news. They they, they talk about him as if he's some kind of like myth that weird people believe or dumb people believe or people that got to screw loose or they need to be committed to, to an asylum because they believe in a God. That's how they act. And this false religion just kind of like towers over us. It's very dangerous. That's what he's saying. Now he's saying you're letting this get into the church and you're tolerant of it. And, and I have that against you. That's what he's saying. The church should not get worldly. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's still in the Bible, right? 1 John 2.15. Can't explain that away. And so this, you have this problem with it. It's warring against the soul. Abstain, you are sojourners and pilgrims, 2 Peter 2.1, 1 Peter 2.1. And you should abstain from fleshly lust because they war against the soul. Your soul is at war. Fleshly lusts are warring against your soul. And, and so he's not saying, I'm going to judge you because of your idolatry and your immorality. You notice that? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm holding you responsible because I'm going to judge them. And obviously, if they're involved in immorality or idolatry, then they're going to be judged with a sword of his mouth. But, but he doesn't say you. He says them. But he says they're among you. Guys, you paying attention? Listen. Young people, pay attention, okay? This is important. So, like, so you say, well, hey, um, there are in the church people who really love the Lord, and they know the Lord, and they love the Lord, and they're on fire for God. And then there are people who are like in immorality, and they're not really serving one God, they're just tempted to serve another God, right? And so which group are you in? Okay, let's say that you're in the group that really loves God, you stand for God, but your friends, other people in the church don't, and you don't do anything to help them, you don't do anything to, 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 to rescue them. God says, don't you care about them? I'm going to judge them with a sword of my mouth someday. I'm going to come and judge them. They're going to die. They're going to go to hell. Like, it isn't just the pastor's job. It is the pastor's job. It's every Christian is responsible to make sure other people don't get judged by Jesus. That's what he's saying. Notice it says it right here. Um, Repent, verse 16, or I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so what is this called? The, what are you, in a way, what he's saying is, I have this against you. You aren't practicing church discipline. We sometimes use that term. You, I have this against you. You're letting this immorality go on. You're letting this idolatry go on among people that are among your number. And you don't practice church discipline. So I am going to have to judge them, but I'm holding you responsible. And you should care about this. So it's almost like Jesus is saying to the church, you should care about me and you should care about them. But you don't care about me and you don't care about them. That's what he's saying. Isn't that kind of hit close to home? So I know we, what we tend to think is, oh, I know what church discipline is. That's when you kick somebody out of the church. You know, that's when you excommunicate somebody from the church. You've heard about the Amish shunning somebody, or maybe you heard a story. It's kind of like Hester Prine. You drag somebody up front that made a mistake, and you make a spectacle of them, and you embarrass them publicly, and everybody kind of wags their fingers, like, go out of the church. You know, like, the Bible teaches church discipline. That the Bible teaches that if a person persists in their rebellion against God, then the people in the church can't continue to consider them 
a member of the church in good standing. The Bible's very clear about that. If we don't obey the Lord on that, then he's going to come and judge these people with the sword of his mouth. It's almost like we can stand between going, no, 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 please, he's coming to judge. Could be any moment. He says, I'm going to come quickly. Please don't do that. Please don't continue. I'm going to love you. I'm going to invite you out for coffee. I'm going to invite you to my Sunday school class. Church, listen, folks, listen. Church discipline isn't just when the pastors and deacons get together and kick somebody out of the church. No, no, no. Discipline sounds like discipleship. That's what it is. Discipleship is church discipline at its very best. When you get to, dis- to excommunicating someone, that's just so very sad. It's not the end of the road either. You know, often people come back, you know, but it's so very sad. But it should, so you don't just sit back and go, okay, are those deacons doing their job? Are those pastors doing their job? You know, they're getting kind of lightweight around here. I think we need to have a little bit more discipline, you know. No, 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 don't do that. Get invite, you see somebody that's straying and they're at the water cool with somebody else's wife too long and you go over there and say, are you doing okay? How's your marriage? I've been praying for you. I'm kind of concerned for you. Can we talk about this? Have you been looking at porn? Come on, let's just talk about that, man. We need to talk about that. I want to help you. Wouldn't it be just wonderful if you had real Christian friends who are helping disciple you? That's what Come, Grow, Serve is about. It's about this passage. It's like, if you really have a vision of the Son of Man, that he is God and he's coming back, and he's going to judge people that aren't walking with him, then you're going to be involved in a process like this where you say, come, grow, serve. I want to be a disciple, and I want to make disciples. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. That's what we're talking about. And what action are we told to take? He says, repent, or else I will come, as I mentioned that. Okay, so that's the word of the Lord to Pergamos, or Pergamum, both are correct. One's neuter, one's not. But what's the word of the Lord to Taylor? Let's think about that. So here, here I have uh, made some slides that I would suggest for our church. How can we resist worldliness? So here we go. From the text, let's not let, by God's grace, our church get worldly. Amen? Amen? If somebody tells you, oh, I know that church. They have drums, so they're getting worldly. Just smile at them and say, well, no, no, that's not true. We love the Lord. And our church is not getting worldly. We don't want to get worldly. Maybe, but it's not because Tavio is up here playing the drums. Tavio loves Jesus, you know. And so that's, that's not it. People will do that, and they, you know, they mean well, but don't, don't get that. Don't get, that's weird. Don't, don't go there. That's not true. I know lots of people who like music with drums. They totally love Jesus, and they would die for him. And the church here is full of them. So this is serious, and I'm, you know, I, you know this is, it kind of hits close to home, but I'm serious about this. It's, sometimes a church is misrepresented, and we say, oh, you don't care about God. You don't care about Jesus. You don't care about holiness. You don't care about worldliness. Don't you ever say that about this pastor, these pastors, these deacons, and these people. That's not true about evangel. We care about this. And, but we're not just like badgering people who do stuff we don't do. That's just shallow. That's just thin. That's not what we're talking about. That ain't going to win the day against worldliness. It's a lot more subtle than that. Okay, so here are some stuff right out of the Bible about how we can keep evangel from becoming worldly. We do not want to be a worldly church. We do not want to be a church that makes sinner people comfortable with their sin. We want to be a church that makes sinner people convicted over their sin. You can quote me on that. You may have a cup of coffee in your hand with the bagel, and you may have music that you like, 
but you're going to get hit right between the eyes with the word of God every time you come to this church. And if you are harboring sin against God, we love you enough to help you go, you got cancer in your soul and you need treatment right now. We preach that way, not because we're holier than thou, but because we realize there is, we have a vision of the Son of Man, and He's coming to reward and to judge, and we want to help people. That's what it's about. So here are some words. This is the word of the church in Taylor. Number one, listen. When God talks, listen. Well, He says, verse 17, let whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So listen. This is, how do we listen? We read the Bible every day. We listen to our pastors and teachers and, and, the, and our parents that say, listen, that's why I'm always like, well, like, listen, that's not about me, but like, listen, when we're talking here, this is a holy hour. This is the pastor officially opening the Bible on the first day of the week when the people of God have assembled like they've done for centuries. It's time for you to stop and listen and go, does God have a word for me? And then open your Bible in the morning and you listen some more and your dad talks and you listen, listen. That's the first thing because you're not really listening for the human voice. You're listening for the Holy Spirit to tell you what you need to hear. And he will do that if we teach his word. So that's the first thing, and that is listen, evangel. And notice it's to the churches. And then repent. And that means whatever you see is wrong, you change it. And by the way, this word is a very thorough word. Metanoia it means mind, will, and emotion. It gets me all choked up. Mind, will, and emotions. I change my mind. I change my will. I change my emotions. Everything about me does an about face. I completely change the way I look at things. Whenever I'm confronted with sin, then I repent. Church, this is how we keep from worldliness. Listen, a lot of times we think, I know how we keep the church from worldliness. We put pressure on the pastor to throw people out. Well, of course people should be disciplined, but no, that, no it starts, it's an internal thing for everybody. So you get up in the morning and you look at yourself, what do I need to repent for? Now what do I need to tell other people they need to repent for? Sometimes I get so tired of that, to be honest with you. I think, are you kidding with, is anybody like, we got a lot of finger pointing and very little personal self-evaluation. There's a lot of people that think other people should repent of stuff who rarely repent for anything themselves. So what I'm saying is that the Spirit speak to you. You repent of being unkind to your wife. You repent of caring more about your hobby than you do about Jesus or not letting Jesus into your hobby like he wants into your hobby. You repent of your filthy mouth. You repent of your dirty mind. You repent of your selfishness. You repent of your pride. Don't just look at other people that do stuff that you never had a problem with. It's easy for me to pick on people who who are obsessed with broccoli because I have never been obsessed with broccoli. And so it is with like tobacco. Some of you, you didn't smoke, so you just think people that smoke are just so horrible. And really when the, when, the, when the cards come in at the end, maybe the guy who smoked is a whole lot closer to God than you are because you've been a religious hypocrite for years, what I'm saying. And so am I saying that you should go smoke? Of course I'm not saying you should go smoke. I didn't say that. I'm just saying it's pretty pitiful if a guy who has a smoking habit is closer to the Lord than you are, Right? And that's just very true. So repent. Repent of idolatry, which means putting anything else in the place of God. Repent of immorality. I, I, here's what hit me. Okay, so God is writing to the church and saying, you let some of those people have immorality. And then the Holy Spirit says to me, do you have immorality? Like, we're, like uh, okay, George Eldon Ladd is one of the 22 or 23 commentators that I read every week when I read about Revelation. And he wrote a commentary in 1971. I read it this week. 1971 wasn't all that long ago. And he said something like this. This It's kind of a loose paraphrase. George Eldon Ladd says in the commentary, of course we know that in the church of professing Christians, it's very uncommon for us to have 
overt immorality. I'm like, in 1971, maybe it was uncommon. But in 2015, it's become pretty common. So we should repent of idolatry and our immorality before we get to repenting of being tolerant, which is the main idea here, being tolerant of those who are idolaters and immoral in the church. I'm not talking about just going and being mean to them. I'm talking about engaging them, winning them, helping them, loving them, but eventually just not tolerating idolatry and immorality in the church. That's what the text is talking about. And then this is so, number one, listen, and step one, if you will, how to resist worldliness, and then repent regularly. Keep your repenting every day. Just keep, get up. Is there anything? Get to bed at night. Is there something I need to make right? I, I almost, I just have to do this all the time. I do it this week. Member of the church needed to ask forgiveness. You know, I was just, I hated it. I kind of wanted to say, well, if I was wrong. Matter of fact, that's what I first said. If I was wrong, and my, and my insides were going, either you were wrong or you were not wrong. Are you going to ask forgiveness here or not? I'm like, Ugh. So that's my, that's my noise for I don't want to ask forgiveness. So this is what's going to keep us from worldliness. Not we have rules against those bad people out there, those bar-hopping, barmaid type people. We have rules against them. We hate them. Go away and don't come back. We hate you. That's not how you keep a church from worldliness. That's how you make a little narrow sect of a church that's not really a church. That's what you do. I'm talking here about uh, every one of us. There's no shortcut. Every one of us getting up every morning and saying, Jesus, am I where you want me to be? Do I love you? And am I living for you? And am I repenting of my personal sin, not just down on other people because of their trouble? And then participate in church discipleship. And I I will talk a lot about that, but I don't have time now. And then, obviously, the main thing here he's commending them for is that they held on. So there were people there that even though there was this immorality and idolatry, and they were allowing some of it to go on. They were, they were holding on, and they hadn't denied the faith, and we certainly do need to do that. I will tell you this before we go on, and we'll talk a lot more about this in the future, but the Bible teaches a doctrine that the, the phrase isn't in the Bible, but the idea is very clear in the Bible. The doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints. How many of you heard of that? Raise your hand if you Okay. How many of you heard of the term eternal security? You ever heard that term? I like perseverance of the saints better than eternal security, and I'll tell you why. Some people say, well, I believe in eternal security. And what they mean is, I made a profession of faith, and now I can live like the devil and tell people I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, that's not eternal security. That's just eternal ignorance right there. You know, that's just foolishness. No, because believers have a growing holiness. They are overcomers. They persevere. How can you tell a believer is a believer? One of the ways you can tell is they persevere. That every time the passages that we're studying talks about the Nike word overcomer, it's talking about the perseverance of the saints. It's not talking about you keeping yourself saved. You can't do that. You can't keep yourself saved any more than you can save yourself. He's the one who saves you, and the one who saves you keeps you saved. But if you're genuine in your salvation, you will be an overcomer. You will persevere to the end. And the scriptures are so clear. We'll, we'll share many, many scriptures about that in the future. But for now, I, I would just say, um, uh, imagine, or uh, if you will, uh, think um, about um, uh, first, uh, first John, and the passage was in my brain, and it just left my brain, but in the a passage in First John teaches that those who are believers will endure, or they will overcome. And the scriptures are very clear about that. You, you, in, in, he who began a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
uh, Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. In the book of John, you're in the hand of God, and no one can remove you. And if you're sincerely, genuinely saved, you certainly won't remove yourself. That's not true. But if you're not sincerely and genuinely saved, you may look like you're saved. So what can happen is, here's what happens when people think they can lose their salvation. The problem is this. Maybe in one case, sometimes there could just be an honest misunderstanding of the interpretation of Scripture. But in one case, you've got somebody here maybe who, who makes a profession of faith, and then they stray off. And that makes you think, well, they can't be saved anymore. They were saved at one time, but they're not anymore. Okay, here's one of three things that can be true. Number one, and there are examples of each of these in the Bible. Number one, they're really, really saved, and they're not walking with the Lord right now, and God is on them, and he's going to bring them back. We've got people that are here right now that drifted off for years. And when they came back, they said, God was on me for years, and I'm back. I knew the Lord, but I wasn't walking with the Lord. Scary business right there. Those people are saved. Lot was doing things that weren't right. The Bible says about him, he vexed his righteous soul from day to day. He was a believer, but he wasn't doing right. At one point, Peter is cursing God. You go, that dude is an apostate. Was he? Absolutely not. He was an apostle, right? Jesus warmly kind of brings him back, and Peter proves he was for real because he perseveres to the end. And so the scriptures teach the perseverance of the saints. And every time we get to one of these passages and it talks about overcoming, it's talking about not you, you know, mustering up the, 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 the holiness to impress God and stay saved, because that totally messes up the whole idea of the doctrine of justification by faith altogether. What it's talking about is it shows these are the ones who are genuinely saved, the ones who overcome. And so these are, what the, in a way, the message to the church. But can I just say something here? Uh, the, in, this, um, in this matter of number three there, participating in church discipline, we have, these, um, we have these banners here to remind us that we have a mission as a church. Our mission did not come from one of the pastors. Our mission came from Jesus. And the mission didn't come from a pastor book. It came from Matthew 28. And Jesus says this on the mountain after a post-resurrection appearance. And he says, I want you to be my followers, be disciples, and I want you to be baptized. And I want you to um, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to Teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And this is how our church is trying to do that. You get it? So the discipleship process, the church discipline process is that. That's what we're talking about. We'll talk about it a little bit more tonight because we have a quarterly business meeting. We're going to kind of crunch our quarterly business meeting and our evening service together a little bit to make it, because uh, we're going to talk about some of the same things. I'll talk about this a little bit tonight. We'll crunch out. We'll have a really important thing we're voting on tonight having to do with the definition of marriage. Now we have to define marriage because our culture is confused about the definition. So our church needs to define So we'll have a constitutional amendment that you're voting on as members tonight. It's important that you come and vote on that. Uh, so you're a member of the church. Have, make sure you're here to vote on that tonight. Um, and, and what we'll do is we'll talk a little bit about this. And then we'll have some testimonies, and then we'll kind of segue into the official business meeting, and hopefully we'll end earlier than we normally do, and that will entice you to come to the meeting. Deal? Is it a deal? Raise your hand if you'll be here. Good. All right. And so, uh, and so notice I didn't give you time to do that. Um, but, but, but so the idea here in this discipleship, though, is, and here's a little illustration I want to give you. Our church is 81 years old. So in 81 years, what you can do is you can look around and you can say, that's a church thing, let's do that. That's a church thing, let's do that. That's a church thing, let's do that. Or sometimes you can do things and the guy who started it is dead or, or moved away and we're still doing it, but we have no idea why we're doing it because the guy's not here anymore who started it and we're still doing it or it might be good. Now, sometimes, in other words, churches are, don't have a discipleship process. 
Stay with me just for a minute. I know I'm kind of long here, but sometimes churches don't have an actual mission and a discipleship process, which we're trying really hard to do, all right? And and because of that, because Jesus is so amazing and beautiful and and the truth is so compelling, good things happen anyway, and a lot of times we take credit for it. We go, hey, look at that. That's because of our church. No, it isn't. It's because Jesus is wonderful, even though what we do in church is often very lame, right? So what we want to do, though, is we want to make our church, we want to line our church up and say, here's a process, and here's how you plug into that. Here's how you get involved, and here's how you get to be a part of that, see? So I heard once about this guy, and he was like a gizmo doodad guy, and every time he saw a light or a bell or a whistle or a noisemaker or a mechanical thing or a pulley, he bought it, and he put it on his machine. So he built a machine full of lights and pulleys and doodads and gizmos, and, and he had all kinds of stuff, and when he turned it on, it would steam, and lights would flicker, and pulleys would turn, and it did absolutely nothing. It didn't do anything. Beyond maybe just entertaining people, it didn't accomplish anything. A church that doesn't have a discipleship process can end up being kind of like that, except obviously God in his mercy sometimes does good things. Anyway, we just don't want to be that kind of church. Let's be a church. So if you want to know how you can keep from being a part of this judgment or the people that you love being a part of this judgment and the church being judged for being worldly, the answer is participate in the discipleship process and then, now, so i got to finish. So let's look at the rest in the last verse. Because there's one more thing that we didn't talk about because I left it to the end because it's so awesome. All right? And that is, notice this, in verse 17. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, what will I do? So this is, what does he promise to give the overcomer? Which would be the true believers. And he promises three things, and they're kind of mysterious. He says this manna people don't know about. And this stone, which we don't know much about, you know, and, and without studying a bit, you're like, what's that? And this name, which specifically says, only the person who gets it knows. What is that about? Okay, now think about the pantheon of gods here. Think about uh, Athena and Asclepius and Dionysus and Demeter and think about the Zeus and Trajan and all the pantheon of gods that actually have temples in this place. And people are going to them to have their needs met because people have these innate human needs and they're scrambling from little G God to little G God and they're never getting satisfied because that's what Satan does. He lures us in and then he sucks the life out of us and that's the way it is. Jesus is coming along and he's saying, I'm the true God and I'll satisfy genuinely. I will, if Athena says she'll give you wisdom, I will give you ultimate wisdom. Asclepius says, I'll give you healing. He says, I'll give you ultimate vitality. Dionysus says, I will give you pleasure. And he says, no, no, no. The only satisfying pleasure comes from me. Demeter says, I will give you prosperity. I will give you plenty. She says that. He says, no, no, prosperity only comes from me. Zeus says, I'm superior. Jesus says, no, no, you're not. You're, you're made up. I'm superior. And the Roman government says, and the Roman government's gone today. Jesus says, still here. Amen? Amen. So our ultimate confidence should be in him. And that's what these three things are saying. Okay, so track with this really quick. Okay, number one, he says, I'll give you human man, give you hidden manna. In other words, there is a satisfaction. There's something that we eat that we're satisfied with. And this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus gives us himself as, and the people that don't know the Lord, they don't get that. It's a mystery to them. They don't understand why we're here today. What? Are you kidding? That guy's going on for 45 minutes. Why are you doing that? You know, it's not, it's not that interesting. Well, it's about Jesus. That's why. I can get away with not being all that interesting, and yet still you have a heart for that. Why? Because Jesus is satisfying. He's manna they don't know about. Satisfaction is what he's talking about. And this white stone is interesting. They have the white marble stone in this culture. They use them for different things. But in this particular context, there were these athletic competitions 
and the victors in the athletic competitions, and there were banquets that would follow the victory in the athletic competition, and your admission to the banquet in, uh, after winning the athletic competition, which of course is imagery always used by the Lord about Christians, was a white marble stone with a name on it. And if you had that, you could get into the banquet where you ate the manna and you celebrated the victory. That's what he's saying to them. If you persevere, if you stand against idolatry and immorality, if you be a holy church, then I will satisfy you in a way that no God of this world can satisfy you. I will give you admittance to a place where no one else will be admitted, even though you're perfectly excluded now. And finally, he says, I'll give you a name. Look at that. That's just so interesting, enigmatic, mysterious. A new name. Not an old name. A new name written, which no one knows except him (laughs) who receives it. That's an awesome thing. I've been thinking about that this week. God is dealing personally with each one of us as we enter glory. And he says, you're about to be satisfied like you've never been satisfied. And, oh, I see you have that stone with your name on it. And then he whispers something to us. And when he does, we go, he knows me. He knows me. Only somebody who knew me intimately would know to call me that. I have a daughter I love very much. When she was born, I tried to think of the best name I could think of. Lois and I got together, and we decided to name her after two Bible characters, Hannah and Ruth. We wanted her to be godly, so we gave her two Bible character names. Is that a lot of pressure, Hannah Ruth? So when she was a little girl, she was just this adorable little girl. I just loved to have her toddle around the house, and she was kind of younger down the birth order. And I don't know why, it just seemed right to, to corrupt her Ruth to Rudy. And so nobody else did it. Lois didn't do it. Sisters and brothers didn't do it. Nobody else did it but me. I would say, hey, Rudy. And still today, it just comes out when I'm not thinking about it. If I'm around other people, it embarrasses her. And she will tell the people, please don't call me that. You know, that's my dad's name. And, and you know, it's not like I really... I remember when I dropped her off at camp. She's going to go away. She's going to work at camp, you know. And all I could think about was, you know, Rudy's going to work at camp. And I made a mistake of saying it in front of a friend. If she, if she heard Rudy, she would know that I knew her and it was me. And we have a special relationship of intimacy, a dad and a daughter. I'm the only one who really understands that. She's the only one who understands that. On the street, people would go, why does your dad call you Rudy? That makes no sense. Well, it doesn't make sense to you. But it makes a lot of sense to her. And that's just a tiny broken human illustration. You are loved by God. You are cherished by God. He knows everything about you. He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows the secret desires that you have. He knows the things that have broken your heart. He knows what you're afraid of. And one day he's going to give you admittance to a place where there's going to be satisfaction like you have never imagined. He's going to give you admittance to a place that everybody can't go, only those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And he's going to whisper a name in your ear that proves that he knows you like nobody else knows you. Why would you ever want to worship any other God but that God? Let's close in a song.